Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thank you, Crystal Lou. Uh, thank you for everybody that was, has contributed uh, to this service this morning. We want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. And I do want to uh, give a little bit of a warning. Um, our computer connection up here, our internet connection up here is a little bit spotty. So uh, we may just go to audio um, if I'm lagging too much. But let's jump right into the text. Let's just jump right into the scripture. Um, as you can see here in verse one, this account actually takes place after the birth of Jesus. And when it says after, what it means is not minutes after, not even days after, like uh, we had seen with the story of Simeon uh, on Christmas Eve. But this story takes place 18, 24 months after the nativity scene. And what that means for us is that the Jesus that we're dealing with here is no longer in swaddling clothes, but he is perhaps standing at his mother's knee. Um, and what we learn about that, uh, what we learn about the days that follow the incarnation is that on the one hand, the world looks relatively the same, uh, despite the, cer uh, the certainty of Jesus's birth, despite the magnitude of Jesus's birth, there are still deserts to cross, there are still dictators to contend with, and as you and I know very well, death is always around the corner. But on the other hand, you have this kid, this uh, cosmic king, who has been born to a nobody, you might say, in a, in a, in a town that is uh, nowhere uh, special. But he is like a cosmic magnet, that he is drawing people from far and wide to himself in order that they might know the living and true God, and that they might join him in the restoration of the world. Now, it's really common uh, to hear when people talk about their faith, that uh, they talk about their faith journey, or they talk about their spiritual journey. But what this passage shows us is that, at least for these three magi, 
they're not so much on a journey as they are on a quest. And, you know, Tolkien writes a little bit about the difference between being on a journey and being on a quest. And I think that might set us up fairly well this morning. You know, for Tolkien, a journey was a kind of adventure that you go on because you want to go. It's a kind of there and back again, and you come back and life goes on as it always has. But a quest is altogether different. A quest is one where you go because you have to go. A quest is one where you go because if you don't go, uh, the fate of the world uh, will be changed. And you know that if you go on a quest, that life will never be the same. Whether you survive it or not, when you return, you will be forever changed. And that's what we have here. And so as we look uh, into 2021, as we come through a year in which hopefully we've been changed, uh, we've been affected. Um, as we look to 2021, maybe we think about our, our lives uh, in New York, our lives with one another, in our relationship with God, more like a spiritual quest. And so this passage can give us four things, I think, four elements of that quest that I think we could learn from. So let's do that. And so that not just uh, in this week of Christmas and Christmas tide, but um, all throughout the year, we'll be able to really know what Christmas means, and that is that God is with us. So here are the four elements. Uh, let's look at the star. Let's look at the scripture. Let's look at the child. And let's look at the change. Four, the star that leads to the scriptures, the scriptures that point us to the child, and the child that brings about tremendous change. So first, the star. Uh, can't get away from the star and the story, and, and we shouldn't, uh, for it's the star that actually compels these three ancient Near Eastern scholars, uh, these three cultural out outsiders, they're called the Magi, to leave their house and their home and to embark out on to this quest. And they've traveled a great distance. They've come to Jerusalem, and when they get to Jerusalem, they make two statements, and these two statements cause everybody in the town to get nervous, and they cause Herod to get nervous as well, and they are found there in, in verse 2. Uh, the first is that they say that they're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, Herod was a Roman prefect, uh, but this statement would have made him uh, very uncomfortable. It would have put him in a very uncomfortable position, and, and in order to understand that, we need to understand a little bit more about who Herod is. You know, Herod was called Herod the Great. And he was called Herod the Great because he was a person of, of tremendous vision and uh, great ambition. And when I say he was a person of, of great uh, uh, vision, um, you know, history says that he was a person that could see a region, survey a region, and see what needed to be done. He was, in effect, a, you know, a great city planner. He was an architect. He built uh, the port city of Caesarea, which in that time, was thought to be one of the wonders of the world. Uh, so he was a man of great vision, but he was also a man of, of tremendous ambition. And the legend or the story is, history says that if you stood in his way, then he simply stamped you out. And he was known to have done that not only to his political rivals, but he was known to do that uh, to his very own family. So Herod was known as Herod the Great because of vision, because of ambition, you know, he could go all throughout 
the region and point at projects and say, that's mine and that's mine and that's mine and so on and so forth. Um, and so uh, because of those two things, his vision, his ambition, he also wasn't afraid, you might say, to, um, to he, he, he wasn't afraid to, to join the people that he couldn't defeat. And so he ends up marrying into the, the Hasmonean line. He ends up becoming a Jew. Now he was a converted Jew. Because he was a converted Jew, he was able to be elected king of the Jews. And so everybody knew that Herod was the king of the Jews, but everybody knew he was a converted Jew. That he hadn't been born king of the Jews. He was not born into the people of God. And that began to make people feel nervous. But they also began to feel nervous because when the wise men came, they were asking about the one, um, what was it say? They were looking for his star. They were looking for the one who was born king of the Jews because he had a star. Now, it doesn't say a star. They say his star. And what that means that is that this king, this king that they were looking for, that he had property. Uh, he had a portfolio that was beyond Herod's reach. He had power and authority that Herod could never acquire. If this king had dominion over a star, uh, then it's true what, you know, theologians would eventually say that there wasn't a square inch in all of the known universe that Jesus didn't rightfully claim that this is mine. And so what we have here with the coming of the wise men is a very public reminder that Herod wasn't the true king. Uh, in the most public way, Herod is being revealed. He's being dethroned and he's feeling threatened. And that's something that you and I should take seriously. Uh, to be dethroned, to, to be revealed is actually, can be a really good thing. For, you, for ancient people, for modern people, is that we can set up a kingdom for ourselves which prevents God or anyone from ever dethroning us. And so let me ask, what aspect of 2020 has God used to grab your attention? You know, 2020 is a constellation of stars, which is, uh, has the potential to reveal us, to dethrone us. And let me just put this before you, too. You know, the miracle of the star, you know, it's not that uh, God had a ball of gas or a supernova lead these men to the Lord. That's not necessarily the miracle. The miracle is that God will use anything in all of creation, anything at his disposal, and that uh, to he'll use any of these things to to uh, for his employment. He'll use any of these things to grab your attention, to grab my attention, so that we'll be drawn to him. So uh, let me ask, what if God is taking this thing of 2020, whatever it is, maybe it's the whole year, maybe it's one aspect of the year. And what if he is taking that and he's turning it into a star for you in order to draw you closer to him what if that thing dethroned you what if it revealed you let it and if you let it if we follow the wise men then we will allow that thing that star in your life to lead you to the scriptures now 
the second point, if you will, the scriptures. Now, when we see Herod and the scribes go to the scriptures, it's not like they're going to a Bible study. The image that we should have really is here you have a king and his uh, generals, you might say, along with all the experts, and they're coming into the situation room because they want to know where this king is. And so they come to the scriptures, and they're not necessarily looking for, um, they're not necessarily looking, they're coming with, with all kinds of different motivations, but one of the motivations is not to experience what you might say is divine revelation. But they're coming as a people threatened. And so they come to the scriptures. I'll say that Herod comes uh, on the offensive. He wants to know where this king is, where to find him, so that he can stamp him out. But the scribes, they come, uh, not that different, they, but I'll say they come with a posture of defensiveness. They come because they want to uh, maintain their, their status in the culture and their relationship uh, with power or the relationship to power with Herod. And so they provide him everything that they need. And so here are two ways of coming to the scriptures. You know, that one comes uh, at, at, to use the scriptures as a weapon. And the other comes to the scriptures uh, as, a, as a place uh, to use it as a place of self-preservation and protection. But neither of them come to the scriptures really wanting to uh, deal with the God behind them. None of them want to deal with the divine revelation that is inherent to them. And that's really important. You know, Herod is a cautionary tale. But we shouldn't be so prideful to think that you and I can't come to the scriptures for the exact same reasons. You know, we all feel that we're the hero to our, our own stories. You know, and that means that every person has the ability to actually uh, justify any act that they have. You know, Phil Hoffman, Phil Hoffman was a, maybe the best actor of his generation. Hard to dispute. Um, and he, he was asked once, what, what's it like to play a villain? And he said, it's not a problem at all. You know, we're all the hero of our own story. And if you're the hero of your own story, then there's nothing you can't justify. Not murder, uh, not theft, not uh, lying or cheating or stealing or uh, demonizing another people group that doesn't, doesn't uh, believe the same things that you, you do. Nothing. Stamping out your own family. Everybody's the hero of their own story. You know, Martin Luther, uh, building on that idea, or maybe he had the foundation for that idea, you might say, says that the human heart is one that's turned inward. Very famously, he says, it's the human heart is incurvitous in say, and therefore, whatever we comes into our path, we make it about ourselves. We don't actually look at any particular thing uh, and say, this is about God. I want to give glory to God, but we turn and we make these things about ourselves and we can do the exact same thing when it comes to the word of God. And therefore we can use it as a weapon or we can use it as something for self-preservation as opposed to listening to it, submitting to it and knowing that it's an opportunity for divine revelation. You know, I was telling my son uh, last night, I was reminding him of a story. Uh, one time when he was probably two or three, I was given a pair of sunglasses uh, for my birthday. And it was in the summer. 
and I was standing behind him or kneeling behind him and I was holding him and I was whispering, you know, sweet things into his ear and I had these glasses on, but he hadn't seen me in them yet. And as he turned around, he began to smile. And I thought, of course, he was smiling because of the sweet things that I was, I was imparting to him. But he was actually smiling because he was staring at himself in my reflection. And he was smiling at his own image. He was glorifying in his own image. There he was, you, uh, being held by his creator, being told beautiful things uh, that would make any son's heart uh, grow in confidence and warmth. And yet, um, the human condition is that we tend to uh, we tend to see ourselves and to glorify and celebrate in our own selves rather than our Heavenly Father. Of course, it's a pretty obvious illustration. So Herod's life and experience uh, didn't allow him to come into contact with some words of God. They didn't come in to allow him to come into contact with the story of, of redemption that's at the heart of the scriptures. He wasn't able to trust uh, the author of that story. And of course, admittedly, that takes time. You know, fathers and sons have a hard time trusting each other as well. You know, one of my favorite films is, is used to be, I'm not sure if it's, it's aged super well, to be honest with you, but at its time, it was pretty progressive and it was called, uh, I guess he's coming to dinner. And there's a scene between Sidney Poitier and his father and it's a generational conflict. It's a father-son conflict. And Poitier, who's very progressive, he says, you know, you don't own me, Dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I think. You don't know what I feel. And if I tried to explain it to you for the rest of my life, you'll never understand. And every son feels that way about their father. And every daughter feels that way about their mother, I'm sure. And every human being feels that way about God. But the scriptures say that it's not true. The scriptures say that God knows us to the very bottom of our being. Knows every inch of our heart because it's his. Jesus says, that's mine. I created you. And that's why I've come for you. And so the God of the Bible is not the father. Or excuse me, the author of the God. The author of the Bible, God is the father that actually knows you to the bottom of your soul is giving you exactly what you need. And he doesn't make life worse. He makes life e uh, better, even though it isn't always easier. So here's the thing that is interesting to me too. Here you have the irreligious people, Herod, and here you have the, the religious people, the scribes, and both of them are circling around this piece of text. Uh, both of them have real motivations, you might say, to find out who this king is, but nobody moves outside their kingdom. Nobody leaves the castle, except for the seekers, except for these magi, these three wise near, ancient Near Eastern scholars who are not uh, followers of biblical religion, but they've been compelled forward. And the spirit of God is at work in them and draws them further on. That's an interesting thing for us to see. 
as religious people or as irreligious people? Are we truly seeking? Are we truly walking by faith? Because if we do, uh, we'll, we'll always be moving forward. We'll always be thrust into greater and greater degrees of, of maybe uncertainty, adventure. Um, and yet, there will always be a sense of a great peace about where we're doing because you'll be in the will of God. So both the, the religious and the irreligious people come to the Bible in order to master it. But in their pursuit of the truth, it's the magi who are allowing the scriptures to master them. And so that's a good thing for us to consider this year. Are we the type? That's not the right way to say it. Are we going to allow the author of the scriptures to master us? Are we going to allow the scriptures to master us this year? Or are we going to attempt to, uh, attempt to master them and be stuck in our castle? So in listening to the scriptures, they're compelled forward. They're compelled uh, by the spirit and they come to the child. And so having left the palace of Herod, they continue on. And once again, they're met by the star and that leads them straight to Jesus, that leads them straight to his family and that leads them straight into worship. And you notice the movement here that, you know, the, the spirit is all over this passage. It's the <clears throat> unmentioned character here. Um, they weren't, of course, being called by the star. They were being called by the one who owns the star. And what that means is that when they saw Jesus, in the depth of their being, they saw the one that was calling them. When they saw Jesus at his mother's knee, they knew in the depth of their being that he was the one that was calling them. Now that may sound strange to you. That may sound like I'm imposing this on the text, but I don't think so. Because the rest of the scripture, the rest of the New Testament is lifting up that very same idea the New Testament message is that the Spirit of Christ works in the hearts and minds of people to draw, to guide, to move forward. You know, in Hebrews 11, it says that Moses endured suffering because of the Spirit of Christ. That's in Hebrews 11. In 1 Peter, 1 Peter says that all of the prophets, all of the, the, the great prophets, uh, great men and women of biblical history, they were listening intently, waiting uh, to know when the, the, the Messiah was going to come, and they were waiting and listening to the Spirit of Christ. So all the Old Testament authors were listening to the Spirit of Christ. And so it's very appropriate, actually, to say that when the wise men show up, it's because they've been listening to the pre-incarnate Son of God. They were listening to Jesus. And when they saw them standing there, they must have, had, must have said in some sense, it was you. You're the one who's been calling us. You're the one that we have followed through the desert all the way here. And what happens? They begin to worship. And I think they begin to worship for a couple of different reasons. But I think one of the factors is, A, that they recognize that he's the one that's been calling them. But I think they also recognize that he's the kind of king that they have always desired. Remember, they've just come from the center of Herod's palace, the seat of power. They must have been relieved that this, this king, that he was, he was utterly different than that king, <laughs> that he was, that this king, that Herod was not the king that they were looking for. 
And so when they came upon Jesus and his family, they come upon him in the most humble of situations. They see this boy, this anti-Herod, and having just stared into the face of evil, they're looking into this kid's face and they find in him the face of sacrificial love. Here you have the God who is willing to be with his people, all his people. And he doesn't come in a form uh, of self-preservation, but he comes as divine revelation to show us his sacrificial love, to, to give his life for us. And so they worshiped him and they gave gifts. And the gifts that they give, you know, are all kind of weird gifts, aren't they? They're gifts that we wouldn't normally give, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, those are gifts that are befitting a king in that time. They're appropriate gifts. But they're also the gifts that you give a king for his burial. And so in the same way that they know, they know that this, this king is not on a journey. But he's on a quest. And the quest means that he's going to come and he'll he'll never be the same again. The quest means that he's gonna uh, take on human flesh. Uh, a, a martyr's death, he's gonna die an unjust death so that you and I can be reconciled to God. God the Father sends God the Son, and God the Spirit draws everyone, draws all people from all over the world to recognize this divine revelation. And so he's on a quest, and he comes on this quest, and he loses things. He loses friends. He loses um, comfort but he takes on a human body and it's a human body that he'll always have, even now. And so it's a quest that he's on and he invites you and I to it as well. See, they knew somehow that this bold and humble king, this God who responds in person was just simply was gonna go all the way. And so you and I can see the sacrificial nature and they saw the sacrificial nature of God and they turn to this God rather than the God of this world who's embodied in Herod. And what I really appreciate there in verse nine is that it says that they, instead of going back to Herod as they were commanded, that they decided to go another route. But my favorite translation says that they decided to go home, that when they decided to go home, they went home another way. And so not only did they return upon a different road, but what's implied there is that they returned home as different people. And that's, of course, the opportunity for all of us to take in the God who enters into the world, who enters into our lives, and to say, which king am I about? Which king do I follow? Which king's uh, story is more compelling than to follow that king? How do you do that this year? Well, I think one way is our relationship to the word of God and just to simply recognize the incomparable wisdom and the profound story at the heart of the gospel. 
and then to uh, enter into a quest, you might say, with the scriptures. Not just kind of a journey of there and back again, and I dip in and dip out, but to say, what is in this text is life-giving truth. And if I go to this text, I have to be prepared to be changed at the most fundamental part of my being. God's going to change my heart. And if he changes my heart, he's going to change my life. And so this year, move into this year, not on a journey with God, but on a quest. And of course, to live lives that are, are uh, as to live lives that are, uh, uh, that look more and more like people who are about the restoration and the reconciliation of the kingdom of God. And of course, that's what Storefront's all about. We're an incarnational ministry. We're a church that's landed, you might say, in a particular neighborhood. And my prayer is that when people come and they experience the community, this community here, that they will have similar experiences that the Magi had. Not that they'll come and worship us, no, not at all. But they'll come and they'll say, this community is different. They love across difference. They're not on the offensive and they're not defensive. But they're just present with people who are suffering. So 2021, here we go. Let's pray that the Lord would be with us. Join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for Christmas. And Lord, would you make this more and more real to us so that we might be a Christmas people, that we might live incarnationally in foreign lands and places that are uncomfortable for us. Because this is, this is the way. This is the way. I thank you, Lord, for uh, living that way and for being that way. We thank you, Lord, for your great love. We pray this in Jesus' name.